to hear now the reading of God's word this morning from John chapter 3. As this is read, we just invite you to receive this as God's word for you this morning. John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, is that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is a verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. All right, repeat. Well, don't, don't repeat. Answer this question or fill in this blank, I guess. There are only two certainties in life. what I thought. That's what I thought. However, a friend of mine recently said, it's not true. He said, it's not true. So the saying goes, the only two certainties in life are death and taxes. But a friend of mine recently said, I'm a lawyer and I know for sure that there's ways to get out of paying your taxes. So take taxes off the table. It's not certain. And then he says, you know, death will be certain. Like, you will die, 
but it hasn't happened to you yet. So actually that's not 100% certain yet because you're still here. So I actually take both of them off the table. So my wise friend said, really there's only one certainty in life and that's birth because you're here. We're all born the same way. We all get here the same way. No one was teleported here from another universe. You all got here the same way. We were all born once naturally and um, death and taxes are only kind of certainty. Um, you know, so being born, like your first birth, your physical birth, people call it a miracle because it really is. Like I, I have two girls, you saw them, obviously, and um, I was there when both of them were born. And if any of you have had this experience too, it's like when you're there, you're like, this is the most miraculous thing I've ever seen in my entire life. There's nothing like seeing a baby being born into the world. It's a, it's a miracle. It's a gift. And yet, here we are, all of us are over the age of 20-ish, um, and all of already, the miracle is kind of faded for a lot of us. It's like, well, life began as a miracle, and I, I see it when other babies are born, but if I look at my day-to-day -day life experience, if I'm honest with myself, maybe most days it doesn't feel like a miracle most days. Maybe it feels even like the opposite some days, like this is a curse even. You know, and the Bible uses that language sometimes of how, you know, life just is hard and is difficult. And that initial birth that was a miracle does end up getting confronted with difficulty as we go throughout our life. And so when you read John 3, the text that was just read for you, a famous passage. I mean, it's probably the most famous verse, singular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. But it's Jesus talking with Nicodemus about a new birth. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit today, just a few points about the change that we're being invited into, um, both by Jesus himself, but also looking back at an Old Testament prophet going hundreds of years before Jesus said what he did in John 3, we're also going to go back to Ezekiel. So if you have your bulletin, you'll find this little insert. This has Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 in it as well. And I'm actually going to kind of preach from both texts a little bit. But maybe Ezekiel will even be the primary text because it just gets to the point a little bit quicker. And then we'll bring in what Jesus says and see how he fulfills it as well. But essentially today what we're going to be taking just a few minutes to investigate is how do people change? How do people change? So we'll look through the lens of Jesus as he's talking through a first talking to a first century Jewish leader, Nicodemus, where he says you must be born again. And then we're also going to look at Ezekiel, the seventh century BC prophet of Israel during the time of exile when Israel was taken away to a foreign land because they were under oppression. And so here's Ezekiel looking at the people of Israel in Babylon in exile, and he says what he does in Ezekiel 36. Today, today we're going to learn a little bit more about the surprising power of conversion. So again, this whole series is called the, Sur the Surprise of the Gospel. So we've been going through each week how God calls us, how he leads us into into new things, into new life. And today is the heart of the matter. It's conversion itself. When you were one thing and then you're now something else. 
It is literally a spiritual birth. That's what conversion is, a spiritual rebirth. But what does this really mean? We're going to look at what the change actually is, why it's impossible, and then what makes it possible again for us, or the possibility of the impossible, essentially. So I'm, if you're already confused, that's okay. I'm going to try to untangle this. That's kind of the point. That's, that's the surprise. How can the impossible become possible? And that's what the gospel surprises us with today, or at least I hope. So first, though, let's, let's just look at the change itself. So Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Let me just read this for you. You can look at it. But Ezekiel, the prophet, says, he's reciting what God has given to him. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's a lot of wills in there because it's 7th century BC. So this is him saying, this is the promise of God that will come for Israel and for God's people. So what is the change? Simply put, the change is one thing is removed and one thing is given. So just to give you an image maybe of other things in life that are similar to that, transplant surgery. Transplant surgery is not a repair of an organ in your body. It's a removal of an organ and a inserting and giving of a new organ altogether. So it's not repairing something, it's taking out and putting something new in there. And I, I imagine... I don't know if any of you have that I know. Um, I imagine people who have had a transplant surgery are probably pretty eager to talk about it and love to talk about it because similar to your first birth, it's kind of a rebirth. You're being given life back again. It's a miracle. And because of that, I'm sure people love to talk about it because they literally were given their life back. They are now alive again because of a new something that was given to them. Not just a repair, but a total replacement. And I imagine if you're a person like me who has not had a transplant surgery, and maybe you're sitting in the pews today listening to me talk about it, you probably say, I don't really love talking about this because it feels really intense and gruesome and risky and, ah, like that's just a lot, right? And so maybe we don't, aren't as comfortable talking about that kind of transplant because we don't have the need for it. But if you had the need and you've had it, you're, you're going to talk about it all the time. You're going to share that news. When the, when the ancient world talks about the heart, I think we need to understand what this means. Because when we talk about the heart today, and you think of Valentine's Day, you think of feelings, you think of emotions... When the ancient world, if you're an Israelite or if you're a Bible Times person, it talks about giving a new heart. The heart for an ancient person is more than just the feelings. It's more than just a, an emotion. But it's actually, according to one commentary, the heart was considered the seat of the mind and the will and the inclinations. So the heart is not just what's literally beating in your chest or what's making you feel, you know, romantic feelings. It's actually the seat of all of your 
emotions and all of your thinking. It's the center of a person. That's what the heart is. So we kind of get that today, but we also kind of lose it a little bit in the red hearts and mushy stuff. And so when it's talking here about getting a whole new heart, this is talking about getting a whole new mind, a whole new way of viewing the world, a whole new inclinations, whole new feelings, all new everything. It's your whole new life. That's what it would be for an ancient person. And it's the same for us today. But let's just, let's lean into this idea of what's being removed first. It says, I will remove the heart of stone. And so if you think about a heart of stone, it's not hard to get this image, right? A stone heart is a hard heart. It's a cold heart. It's a heavy heart. Think about a stone. It's cold, it's hard, it's heavy. And the Bible, in so many places, talks about how the heart that is far from God is like that. It's a stone heart. It's a cold heart. It can do, has possibility of doing good works and good things, but ultimately it still is weighed down. And so a heavy heart is a phrase we still use today, right? You know, it's with heavy hearts that we say so-and-so has passed away. That's, it's a mourning heart. It's a heart that's in sadness. It's in grief. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a heart that's stuck in a place. But it says here that we're given a heart of flesh. And this is what we're all meant for, right? If you Literally, if you've seen a literal heart, of course, it's a fleshly heart. It's not hard. That's what keeps it alive. It's a dynamic organ that where things flow in and, of, in and out of it, literally. But also in a spiritual sense, that's what we're supposed to be like as well. is a, a warm heart, a heart that's dynamic and it's able to be moved. It's able to be affected. It has, it has things that come in and out of it. It's not just stagnant and hard and unmovable. It's, it's flowing. It's real. It's life. That's the heart. And that's what we're being given back. Stone heart taken out, the new heart of flesh taken in. Now, let's talk about mummies for a second. Is that okay? You guys are okay? I didn't get any, con- I, I was expecting a little bit of verbal feedback. Like, why would you talk about mummies? Here's why we're going to talk about mummies. I thought this was fascinating. This helped me understand this passage a whole lot. The imagery here, I'm I'm just going to read what someone describes here because this really helps us. More important to this text is the imagery connected to the mummification process. This is ancient Egypt we're talking about. So from the new kingdom of Egypt times on, so think about pharaohs and mummies, you know, the pyramids. From that era on, when you died as a a pharaoh particularly, and you were going to be mummified, the heart of the mummy, the fleshly heart, was removed from their body and placed in a jar, as were the other important organs. And this was done because the Egyptians believed that the heart of flesh might betray the individual when he came to judgment and thereby jeopardize his afterlife. So the heart was placed in a jar and was replaced with a Stone heart. Carved in the image, and this is where it gets a little weird. Carved in the image in the shape of a dung beetle. Why? Because in Egypt, this insect, the dung beetle, was the symbol of eternal life. 
By transplanting it inside the mummy in place of the heart, they believed they were securing the renewal of a person's life and vitality. Wow, right? Wow. Now think about that in regards to Ezekiel. That's the imagery that he's thinking about here. You've had a heart of stone, and now you have a heart of flesh. So we're going to get back to that in just a moment. But that's the change here that's happening. You're having this exchange of a heart of stone and a heart of flesh. Now, why is this all impossible? Why is the change that's being described for us in Ezekiel 36, and even what Jesus says about being born again, why is it impossible? You know, we already talked about sin. I talked about humanity's condition and the fact that the promises of God are really, really hard to imagine. How can, how can a person who has this kind of heart, this kind of sinful disposition, this kind of heaviness in their heart, how can this person really be born again? How can they be given a new heart and not just go through that Egyptian process like the, like the, the pharaohs did after they were mummified? You know, one, one Bible scholar says this, he actually uses a, a, a phrase earlier in the book of Ezekiel where Ezekiel has this vision of a valley of dry bones. He sees this valley of dry bones and it's symbolizing the death that Israel is experiencing and the hardness in their life and uh, in, in the life of Israel. And it's the same image that is brought around later in the New Testament when Paul talks about us being dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, that apart from being born again, that you're just, you're a walking dead. You're a walking skeleton. You're just walking to your grave with no hope. And so this, this scholar, Edmund Clowney, says this. He says, the Lord had, had to come not only because man's condition was impossible, but because his promises were also impossible. Abraham laughed at the impossible promise that a son would be born of Sarah in her old age. But then he says this, he says, but no word is too much for God. He says, apart from the coming of the Lord, the promises of his prophets, including Ezekiel, would have been pure fantasy. They trumpeted disaster and doom, but they also announced that the Lord was not finished with his people. Isaiah pictured the felling of a cedar of Israel's pride. Was all hope then gone? No, because the stump of the tree remained in the ground and a shoot would spring up from it, a standard, an ensign to which the nations would be gathered. And so he goes on to say all these images of the Old Testament of an abandoned stump, but there's this little branch coming out of it or here of a new heart. These are impossible promises because you're looking at, you know, something that just has really just a glimmer of hope. But it's like for that actually to come to pass seems impossible. He says, but is it really going to be possible for them? He said he would promise to take away their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. He says that he would establish a new covenant, but how so? And I think the reason maybe on a more experiential level, taking aside biblical scholars for a second, but just like you and me and this room today in our daily lives, I think the reason why this feels impossible for us to have some kind of real change in our life is because... First, you have to really want to change. To actually be changed, you actually have to want to change. You know, many people say they want to change, but when push comes to shove, they're not willing to do the work to actually be changed. Or secondly, 
to change, you actually have to admit that there's something that is worth changing. So you have to admit some kind of weakness or failure. And that's, that's really hard for a lot of us. Are you willing to admit weakness? Or even third, to want to change, you have to be willing to go searching for something that could actually change your life, to go search for truth, to go search for answers. So is there, is there actually room for truth in your world today? And then lastly, the last step of it would be, you have to be willing to, to give something up. You have to be willing to give up the control of your life to actually be really allowed to change. And many people get to that place and they say, well, change sounds good. If I have to do all that stuff, admit, count the cost, admit that I'm weak, go search for something better, that seems really exhausting. So again, maybe even some of you, like we put curiosity on our sign out there to make sure people know they have a safe place here, but maybe your curiosity has led you to a lot of places and you're just like, I'm searching for truth, I'm searching for answers, but ultimately I'm not sure I have the strength to actually finish that investigation and to actually be changed myself. You know, and the scriptures tell us a whole lot about the impossibility of change. You know, I'll just read, I'll read the beginning of a few passages here, going all the way back to Genesis 11. Um, you know, when the, when the people build the Tower of Babel, it says, the Lord God says, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So this is actually kind of saying it the other way. It's saying, Humanity actually has the possibility of doing a lot of things on their own. And so if they work together and if they do stuff, really anything's possible for them. But God here is saying that if it's apart from him, it's actually not real change. It's just making a more productive society. Is that really all life is for? You know, later on, Jesus is talking to his disciples and his disciples are really wanting to perform a healing ministry just like Jesus did. And they're asking Jesus why they can't cast out this demon like Jesus did. And Jesus says, because of your little faith. He says, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, then you could do it. Nothing would be impossible for you. But he's basically saying like, it requires that faith at the beginning. And Jesus says later, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That seems impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And so the disciples are greatly disturbed, it says, when he says this. And so they say, well, then who then can be saved? And Jesus says this, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So it's really important for us to recognize before the last point that The Bible basically leads us into the place of saying, if you want to be able to change, if you want to realize change in your life, you have to first get to the place where you realize that nothing is possible in and of yourself. That this actually is impossible by yourself. You can't do anything in life until you realize you can't change anything by yourself. So how does the impossible become the possible? 
Well, we know it's not us, so let's eliminate that. The cause of change, true change, is not found in us. You can't, as Nicodemus, you know, this is really comforting to me. Nicodemus, smart biblical scholar, Jewish leader, and the question he says after Jesus says you must be born again, Nicodemus, smart guy, he says, how can man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? No, Nicodemus, you're missing the point completely. You're a smart guy, but you totally missed the point on that one. Of course you can't go back into your mother's womb. Of course you and I can't just hit the reset button like we do in video games and start back and do it all again. Like change has to come from outside. This is not by you. This is impossible with us. And so we need something impossible to happen in our world that makes the impossible possible. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus was born of a virgin, impossible. Jesus was the son of God, impossible. Jesus was perfectly righteous and lived up to the the standard of God, impossible. You and I know this because none of us were born of a virgin. None of us are the son of God. None of us are perfect. And here's Jesus who the scriptures lead us into this investigation of who he is. And he passes the impossibility test with flying colors. The impossible becomes possible through him, the impossible man, the one alone, Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect and righteous himself. And the beautiful thing about John 3 and Ezekiel 36 is that they both talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. So yes, Jesus came, he lived the perfect life, he died on the cross for our sins, he rose from the dead on the third day. That's core. But let's not forget that when Jesus ascended back up into heaven, he didn't leave us alone with just a good message. He left us with himself, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, living in us for those who believe to empower us to live the impossible life that's not possible on our own. And so you see here, verse 27 of Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you. It's not just the transplant of a heart of flesh. It's also the inclusion of the Holy Spirit himself. And same in in John 3, the spirit blows where he wishes, right? Later on, that's in verse, it's down there somewhere, I'm missing it. You can find it in John 3. The spirit goes where he wishes. Let me just give you an image though of of this. um, On the front of your bulletin is this this cool quote by C.S. Lewis, Uh, I'll read this and then read a little bit more from him. It says, we are the statues and there's a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. Put yourself in that image for a second. You're a stone statue. And there's a rumor going around the shop that these statues are not just going to be stuck cold and hard, but they're going to walk again. They're going to come to life. And this comes from C.S. Lewis's beautiful book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which, just to give you a brief overview of the story, the wicked witch, the white witch of the winter, she freezes all these creatures, and they're, they're stones, they're statues. They're put under her curse. And at the end of the movie, when Aslan, the lion, or the god character in the story, comes He comes up to these statues and he begins breathing on them. And when he breathes on them, the God character, when he breathes on them, they become flesh again. And they begin to walk around. They begin to live again. 
And at the end of that little section, it says this. So it says, Aslan went through all the whole castle where the white, where the white witch had, had put these people into stones. And it says, when they, when they went through the ransacking of the, of the witch's fortress, and when, when that ended, the whole castle stood empty with every door and window open and the light and the sweet spring air flooding into all the dark and evil places which needed them so badly. The whole crowd of liberated statues surged back into the courtyard. That's an image of conversion. That's an image of God breathing on people to bring us back to life, to be reborn. We once were dead and now we're alive again. So Ezekiel says that this is a new, I'm giving you a new spirit. I'm giving you a new heart. I'm putting it within you, the very presence of God with you always. You know, Jesus and Nicodemus, verse eight, that's where the spirit of God blows where he wishes. And this is why all of us are not converted at the exact same time. The spirit blows where he wishes. And he breathes on us at the exact moment where we need to be brought back to life. And he causes us to be born again which is impossible. Titus chapter three uses the phrase regeneration. You've been born again. You've been regenerated by the spirit of God who washes you clean from all unrighteousness. And all this is for what purpose? Why do we, why do we even need to be changed? Is it just to have that experience and then to keep moving forward in our life? No. Verse 27 of Ezekiel says that I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, not statues, statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. He says, I'm, I'm giving you a new heart and I'm putting my spirit within you so that you walk with me, right? Because a statue can't walk. A stone heart can't move, but a fleshly heart can. A new heart can. If you're born again, you can move and walk with God. In John chapter three, uh, the Nicodemus story Jesus says you have to be born again or else you cannot see the kingdom of God. Without being born again, you can't see that life is so much more than just what's in, what's in front of us. Life is about a kingdom that is here and that is to come in growing, in growing measure. You'll never see it apart from the spirit blowing on you. You'll never enter it apart from your heart being transformed. And then he talks about living in the light, living openly and transparently and freely talked about living in God's ways, walking in God's ways and obeying his commandments all your life. And then, yes, John three sixteen, having that life eternally. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that you might have eternal life, and not that you might perish. So you might be living again forever and ever. So remember the mummy thing from earlier where it said they took out the fleshly heart and put in the stone heart? The living God, the real God, the God who loves you immensely is doing the opposite. He's taking out the stone heart and putting in the fleshly heart. He's gonna bring his people back to life by returning to them the hearts of flesh that will not betray them. Remember the mummy process was because they thought their fleshly heart would betray them. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you back your truest heart that won't betray you. So it's not that being human is a betraying thing. It's that being the new human through faith in the son of God, you can be who you were always meant to be. You can be the truest version of you through this new birth process. 
So as we finish, I just want to give you the invitation to, for those of you who are believers in Jesus, to just use this day or this moment or this final song to think back to when you had this experience, when the Spirit of God breathed on you for the first time, whenever you were converted in heart. And just bask in the encouragement of what God has done in your life. And again, the Spirit blows where he wishes, when he wishes. But think back to that day. And if you haven't had that day, then just consider it. Consider the invitation that Jesus is giving to be born again and to have this new heart. And if that's something that you might want to have, to be the fullest, truest version of you that is possible. So I just invite you to consider that and to be encouraged by what Jesus is inviting you. Because frankly, in all the religions of the world, that's not an offer. It's more like the mummy thing. But in the economy of the kingdom of God and in Jesus's life, it's given you back your full self. So you might follow him. So let me close us in prayer. And then we're going to sing just a really rich final hymn. um, And can it be? Let me close us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for each person here that um, anything that was just spoken, that would be profitable to their spiritual journey and to knowing the great love with which you have loved us, that that would fall softly on them. And maybe the stuff that was irrelevant or not needed or even a distraction, that that would fall to the side. But Holy Spirit, we we invite you to to rest on each person in a particular, individual, unique way today. Be gentle with us, Lord Jesus. Um, Be with us now as we sing this final song. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.